Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone and welcome along to the show. Today we get the chance to speak with Peter Beggs, who's the chief executive of Antarctica, New Zealand. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. It's surprising how spiritual many people find it. Mm. Uh, that they, There's a lot of reflection that goes on that you mm. just look at this place and go, oh, I, I, it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's all the words that you, the pictures that you've seen would yeah. describe, yeah. but there's something else that right. I think that f- for me it's looking at the continent and I look at it in, in, in two ways. One as a dad and one as a as a, as a CEO. Mm-hmm. And the CEO part of me just says, this is a dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. Or what am I doing to keep my people safe? Right. And, and that takes up part of my mind. And the rest of it as a dad is, Look, this is a continent that we have to protect mm. and we have to understand its impact on the rest of the world, let alone New Zealand. Mm. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking, if if I do the best I can do, I still don't know if it's going to look different for my children. Mm. Now, this interview with Peter today is one in a series on technology leading up to Tech Week, which is a national event running across New Zealand And there's going to be lots of events happening here in Christchurch as well, including one where Peter will be speaking about space and Antarctica. In the next episode, we'll be considering a different side of technology and looking at the health sector in our conversation with Stella Ward from the Canterbury District Health Board. I hope you can join me for that conversation. The purpose of this podcast is to tell people's stories, and this is now the 39th one which has been recorded and released. Every week we talk with a different person, but underpinning every interview is a discussion about purpose and what it is that people are doing and why they're doing it. An easy way to ensure you don't miss out is to hit subscribe in the podcast app that you're using. Now let's get into the interview with Peter. So it's a pleasure to welcome Peter Beggs, the Chief Executive of Antarctica New Zealand. Stephen, thank you. On this podcast, we talk a lot about um, what people have done in their lives and what they're doing now, and we're going to talk about Antarctica in this interview, and it's appropriate that um, looking behind me, I can see, is this Shackleton's hut? Yes, it is. It's um, Shackleton's hut at uh, Cape Royds, uh, which was his uh, 1907-1909 expedition, um, where he just, just failed to get to the South Pole. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing environment because the whole room, um, people listening can't see it, obviously, but yeah. we've got books on the wall here and the furniture is kind of, you know, from 100 years ago. So it's kind of got a nice vibe as we're about to jump in and talk about Antarctica. It, it's a really popular room um, for our team, actually. They, they love coming into this room and we've set up the, the room to feel like you're in uh, Shackleton's library back in back I in see. the UK or somewhere and, and, uh, and him reminiscing about his... His heart. Yeah. yeah, and you actually said that this table right here, that yeah. some of this wood is from, where was it from? Uh, from Scott Base. From the, Scott the, Base. the original railway sleepers of Scott Base, yeah. 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 Um, the, the old buildings were removed a number of years ago, and we don't waste anything at Scott Base. And uh, a few decades later, uh, we've, we've now turned it into, a, into a, a, a coffee table. It feels like we're in some sort of a, you know, that, somebody's going to walk in and dust off the snow <laughs> yeah it, it's uh, it's one of the things we wanted to create as a as a space that's reflective of I guess a, a legacy of Antarctic explorers when I look at modern day scientists that operate in Antarctica and they are explorers uh, in a modern sense of what they're trying to achieve and, and this this room was was meant for us to come in here and, and acknowledge uh, the the explorers that have been a hundred years ago and only a hundred years ago, where it's uh, that was the modern age really of yeah. of Antarctic exploration. Yeah, well, it's great and it really sets the scene for our interview because mm. what we're going to talk about a lot on the interview, I think, is about Antarctica mm. and um, about Christchurch being a gateway to Antarctica. Um, before we get into that, and the other thing I want to talk about is um, tech mm. and just sort of what goes into an expedition these days mm. to Antarctica. I think that would be quite interesting. Um, but before we get into Antarctica, what I like to do with people I'm interviewing is just find out a bit about their own life journey, 
their own history, because I think that gives a bit of context to what they're doing now. So if, if it's okay with you, we'll just kind of rewind and go back to the beginning of your life, and you can tell us a little bit about where you're from, and then mm. we'll unpack it from there. Ah, I'm born in, in Christchurch and, and raised here as a youngster. Uh, studied uh, here in Christchurch, and uh, I, I was part of what was the, the, the post office um, and got a, a technical um, pathway through, through the post office. I got moved to, to Wellington as part of that. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to, to be offered uh, to play a bit of rugby overseas. And uh, my, my family, my, my grandparents are Irish, and I have an Irish passport. So um, I went off to, to just out of Dublin and, and played a couple of years of rugby over the year. Wow, so it was pretty convenient. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. very convenient. Uh, and, and with yeah. the post office, like at that time, I mean, yeah. was that because it, it's obviously changed a lot to today I mm. keep feel like I'm keep getting notices saying we're reducing the number of um, deliveries and things yeah but at the time that you joined it it was it was a lot of post right yeah it was a government department mm. effectively and and I, I remember uh, applying for that job I, I did it on a on a typewriter and, and submitted a resume right. you know, as, <laughs> as you do um, back in those days and went through a, a number of interviews but it was a um, uh, it was a bursarship I had with them, mm. um, so you worked for them, and they put you through the education. Oh, okay. Which was, uh, very fortunate. Yeah. And so th- that turned into telecom, and which is now Spark, of course. Ah, I see. Interesting. And then the rugby. Um, so was that you were doing that professionally in Ireland, or was it a? Uh, it's bit of both? <laughs> it's funny people ask. Oh, did you play rugby professionally? And I, I, I look at rugby now and go, No. Look, the answer I say is uh, I was paid to play rugby. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I played a bit of rugby here at club level. Uh, I was never going to be uh, a first class or or, or, or all black, and uh, it. It, it it was very good at the time back mm. in uh, 1996 or something when I when I first went over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And had you been to Ireland before? Like, was it a place that you knew or? No, no. So it was a, a place I knew through photographs and and conversation with my my late grandfather. Mm. Um, but my brother, my oldest brother, uh, lived over there as well. So uh, he was a good conduit into into life living there, and he still lives there now. Oh, okay. Mm. Oh, great. And so which city did you move to? Uh, it was just out of Dublin, a place called Wicklow. Mm. Yeah, just um, a short drive south of, of Dublin. As people say there, you can watch the grass grow in, in Wicklow. It's a very, very sedate lifestyle, and, and I really enjoyed it. Very different to, to the work I was doing in New Zealand at the time. Right, yeah. And I guess, how long were you there in Ireland for? Uh, only two years and uh, I, I finished my, my contract there and, and then moved over to, to Scotland and uh, lived in Glasgow for a number of years and was with a, a, a club side there in Scotland for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved into a, a coaching role as well at the end of that uh, and then retired and um, yeah, got back into the real world again in terms of working. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or professional world, I guess, rather yeah. than the real world. Right. And the sporting days, like, um, what are some of your memories of that? <laughs> um, I think it's interesting moving around uh, different cities when you're playing sport. And I know now as an adult with children, when, when you move cities, you, you tend to bond with the parents of uh, or other parents of children at your school and back then I found it easy to move city because I had 20 blokes that were going to be my instant friends because they were your teammates right and and I found that quite a simple process and it wasn't till I finished the sport that I realized that actually when you are only doing moving between cities or countries for work it's a very different approach and, mm. and, and much more difficult. Mm. Yeah, because you have a ready-made community, don't you, as yeah. soon as you show up and start playing the game. Then a, a very like-minded community and one that you are actually very bonded to in a, in a, in a, a team sense. Mm. Were there differences that you found in the attitude to sport between New Zealand and those countries that you were playing in? It's particularly in Ireland, I, I found... Um, Part of part of my role was was helping the children or the youngsters, you know, the under sixteen teams and the like, mm. and um, and coaching them 
uh, on the days I wasn't either playing or training. And you, you coach them and, and I'd say, Are you guys okay to play on Saturday morning? And half the guys, oh, no, I can't play. I'm playing, I'm playing football on Saturday or I'm playing Gaelic football on Saturday. And I'd, I'd look at them and go, Do you, you're not playing rugby? Oh, no, 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 I'm just going to change this week. <laughs> what, what, why? What, do you, and, and their skill set was incredible because they had a diversity of sports, but they didn't have a focus and they'd play whatever their mood fancied mm. for, for the sport that weekend. And I found that quite confronting, actually. Mm. And you think, if you just dedicated to one, mm. and I look now, or even when I was there and look at some of the, the senior professional players and the international players, they had forwards, particularly that could kick and catch and do things that were leagues ahead of, of where other players were because they had that mm. diversity of skill set. Um, but they just weren't training in the same way that, that Kiwis would at some of the other skills. Right. Mm. So they hadn't specialised into, well, yeah. this is my chosen sport. That's right, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. So um, you get back into the professional world or the commercial business world. world. That's the probably business, a better way, yeah. Business yeah. world. <laughs> yeah. Um, and where were you at that at that point? Was yeah, that? I was uh, still living in, in Glasgow um, and lived in and around the UK for a, uh, worked for a big uh, German company, Siemens. You mm-hmm. may have heard of them. Yep. Uh, and I was using my, my uh, technical background at that point mm. m- more so than my other um, education. And, and I um, ended up traveling quite extensively around the world. Mm. And um, was what, de- what department within Siemens were you? So? I, I was in the transportation systems. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so anywhere um, pretty much in... Uh, in Europe and South America uh, and Australasia, mm-hmm. um, I would be I would be travelling, yeah. and I was supporting a particular product set um, around the world, and it was quite great actually. I'd, I'd go to to uh, to different countries, and and I'd be working with local Siemens employees, but mm-hmm. who had uh, a little knowledge of the product itself, but they knew they were able to sell it and there was a market in that country. I so I was kind of educating the local Siemens communities. Mm. And, and and I was treated so well. And I'm going to some countries, Greece is one that, that I, I'll never forget. They were so appreciative of me. I was only there for three weeks or something. Mm. And a massive, big, beautiful basket of goodies they gave me when I left mm. uh, to thank me. And I thought, this is my job. It's, not, it's, it's what I do. Yeah. And... Um, it was fascinating to understand other cultures in a business sense and, yeah. and uh, to see that diversity of how businesses businesses in other countries uh, operate. Mm. Um, and it was very rewarding, I felt. Mm. So just unpack that a bit more, like that cultural differences that you noticed. What was it that was driving that, do you think? Did it, did it have to do with relationship and the, the value of relationship, more of the Latin style, I guess, of... You know that that's a really key part of the business. Very much so. Yeah. Um. In in many of the countries that I worked, it wasn't about the dollar figure on your offer, right? Or how quickly you could do it, or the experience of your staff. But could they look you in the eye and say, "We trust you to deliver what you said you'd do," mm. and that was built up over a number of exchanges, um, and, and business meetings, etc. Mm. And and I. Quite subscribe to that. I, I really like that approach, and I'm fortunate in my current job that I have um, a board that that are very reflective of that ethos as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. So that took you. You said to South America as well. Or? Yes, I, well, it was pretty much all over the world. Right. Um, in fact, it wasn't North America and it wasn't Russia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, that's and everywhere I had Asia and uh, Northern Africa. Yeah. Wow, so you got to see a lot. <laughs> I did, I did. A, um, yeah, I, I tracked a lot of air miles, but at that point um, <clears throat> I just started having a, a family and, mm. um, you know, I I could fly to Monday to, to India and Wednesday to Denmark and you know, Thursday back down to Saudi Arabia and then home on Saturday morning and mm. to do that week after week after week was unsustainable. yeah. yeah. You can do it for a relatively short time, right? But eventually, yeah, it will catch up with you. Yeah, yeah. So was that sort of in the back of your mind? Because obviously, we're here in New Zealand now. <laughs> um, did you have a moment when you thought it's time to go home? Or no, actually, um, Siemens were uh, were very 
are, are kind to me, I guess, and and uh, they they recognised that I was getting to a point where it, it really wasn't sustainable, mm. uh, and they had a very big opportunity in in Australia, and they asked me to head out to Australia to to live in Australia and to and to lead. Um, the opportunity that was in Australia. Oh, I see. So we moved to uh, to Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, and I was there for a little while, and yeah, then got approached by a French company, hmm. and uh, <coughs> a similar field, but not in direct competition to, to Siemens. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I came through their their line, uh, spent a lot of time in Paris with them, and uh, I was I was uh, put on the the junior executive program. Uh, with them, which was a, a very um, nice thing to have in, in, in your early forties, and and I was um, I was a, offered essentially a, a country to go and be country director for, mm. and it felt like they're kind of pulling a name out of a hat and said, right, Peter, <laughs> uh, of all the countries uh, we operate in, we're going to give you a, a little country, and we'll go and lead it, and if you're any good, well, we'll you know move See you up. See what happens. Yeah. yeah. And it it wasn't quite. I'm kind of giving theatre to it, but it was like they pulled out a name that said, "Oh, you're going to New Zealand." <laughs> like, well, that's funny because I'm a Kiwi. <laughs> um, and they gave me a very kindly. They gave me a familiarisation visit. Um, wow. A, and I I operated in New Zealand as a as an expat. Huh. Um, yeah, paid in in, uh, in overseas currency. That's and, convenient. Probably at the time was that pre GFC as well, or was it uh, around was at the GFC, time? Yeah. At GFC. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And having done that, again, more international travel. I was yeah. um, I was the vice president for the regional uh, regional division as well as the the head of country for New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and that meant I was in Australia every week and mm. uh, essentially in Paris one week in six. Wow. So still a lot of travel. Yeah. yeah. And they gave me. They said, right, you've done very well. Here's your next country. Uh-huh. And the the countries they offered weren't really where I was at with a young family at that right. point, two children and they'd You'd probably moved. integrated into society again. And yeah. Yeah. And then the kids have moved around so much. Yeah. Um, and the idea of them trying to learn another language and all that kind of stuff wasn't as appealing as as I and, and I actually had flown to Paris mm. um, and I had my notice in mm. and uh, on flying the way back and they said, Okay, well sorry to see you go respecting my reasons for it and um I landed in I think Hong Kong or somewhere, mid, you know, midway point from from Europe. Yeah, and I had a voicemail message on my phone saying, "Hey, a recruitment agent, would you be interested in a job with Antarctica New Zealand?" <laughs> and I went, "Oh, that's interesting. Tell wow. me more." And huh. four and a half years later, here I am. That's amazing. Mm. Wow. So it's kind of played out well in terms of dominoes seem to have fallen and. It's gone the right way. Yeah. Can I ask you a question just before we move on to Antarctica, New Zealand? Yeah. You mentioned the junior executive program mm. um, that you were in there. I'm just curious about that. Like, what's what were some of the key things that you learned from that? Um, I, I think operating at a at a far greater level or with a lot more responsibility than I had before, but acknowledging that you're a, a junior amongst um, more senior leaders allowed you to really sit back and not have the pressure of of failure. <clears throat> um, and the organisation was very encouraging for young people to, to make decisions, mm. um, but under the umbrella or the support network of, of more experienced um, leaders. And I had some wonderful, I won't call them mentors or tutors, but they were business partners, they were people I worked with mm. who, um, and this is a big company, a, Company of sixty-eight thousand employees around the world, mm. that really helped me understand what what business leadership really looked like, mm. and I was I'm forever grateful for that experience. Mm. Yeah, I like what you said about um, giving the chance to not be afraid of failure. I think mm. too often that's that is the thing that holds people back, isn't it? Yeah, the, and in, in the spirit of, of innovation, that's you can, that's and people know that now that we talk about it openly. Yeah, uh, and I. I, I hope this is what I bring to Antarctica, New Zealand, as well, mm. as developing people to to not have a fear of of failure, but at the same time, operating in a in a climate and an environment which is not forgiving. Yes, and uh, <laughs> we we are, a mistake made there is is you know potentially could cost a life. Yeah, yeah, and so it sounds like you went from this career of moving around a lot, lots of travel and things, 
What do you think um, being from New Zealand or having a Kiwi mindset, do you think that prepared you for that, that life that you were leading and interacting with different cultures? Probably not. No. Uh, I, I, I think growing up um, in, in Christchurch, uh, I remember going to Wellington for the first time and, and standing in a set of traffic lights and, and looking at in front of me, there were two men holding hands. And I went, what on earth is that? Uh, and now, of course, I think entirely differently to what I did as a, as a 19 or 20-year-old. Um, and I th- and I think now, and of course, Christchurch has changed, not just me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I didn't have that experience um, really moving overseas. Yeah. What, what I thought the Kiwi that I, what that we all are mm. here, it, it gave me an ability to be open to new experiences, mm. to give anything a try, mm. to not be afraid, um, and all those kind of things. And they were the attributes, which I guess I'm most proud of. But also the feedback I'd get as I was going from job to different companies that mm. they really appreciate. They said, oh, yeah, the Kiwi's here kind of thing, thank God. Right. <laughs> they appreciated that attitude and yeah. and the willingness to... Yes, to, it's to good work. And, yeah, yeah. It's a, the attitude that yeah. roll your sleeves up, doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. There's a job to be done. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I think we might get on to the topic which we're mm. going to focus on, which is Antarctica, New Zealand. So what, what did you know? And, you know, you get this call from the recruiter. Um, what did you know about what was going on, you know, growing up like you, uh, despite my accent, I actually did grow up here in Christchurch. Yeah. So it's been a big part, a feature. I think, mm. you know, the high school I went to, I think the house had um, Scott, Shackleton, Wilson and Bowen was oh, the wow. names, you know. <laughs> so it was a feature of my childhood. And yeah. I'm sure for you as well, yeah. you know, you'd see the big airplanes coming in and leaving. But what, yeah, just frame the context of what you knew before you got fully into it. I the, the the two major things for for me that I knew as a, as a kid growing up in Christchurch, the first was as you've identified, you know, these big planes that were yeah that were coming in with U.S. Air Force and and, and the big Operation Deep Freeze yes and, yeah. and and all of those things that when you came to the airport, uh, you, you would see these things going on that were that you at the time I. I would recall the vision of what it must be like to get off that plane mm-hmm. and you'd seen photographs of what the Antarctic people would be wearing in these big boots and jackets and you thought oh gosh it must be like landing on the moon yeah and and so that that really gave me a spirit of of curiosity as to what what actually went when you went down there and mm. what it was all about and latterly, of course, the, the Antarctic Centre, which mm. next door to us here in Antarctica, New Zealand, mm. and not linked to us um, in any way other than mm. we, uh, we both talk a lot about the same continent. Mm. And, um, and getting that little experience of, oh, gosh, that's, mm. that's what it's like. And then understanding there's actually a lot of science that goes on <laughs> in Antarctica. And, and then from that Antarctic Centre, starting to understand a little bit mm. more about the importance uh, that Antarctica plays in, in global weather systems mm. and the relevance that has perhaps not so much to my generation but certainly my children and certainly their children after them. Mm. Yeah. So you get the call in Hong Kong and you hear about this and then what happened next? Like, um, I, I walked into the interview and there were two people um, for whom I have uh, the utmost respect for for de- very different reasons and... Uh, on, I'll never forget, on the left side was, was Rob Fife, um, mm. you know, former CEO of Air New Zealand and a, and a, and a, a leadership brain that I very much respect. Mm. And on the right was uh, Sir Rob Fenwick, mm. um, uh, himself an entrepreneur, um, but a very strong environmentalist with a, a, an incredible, incredibly successful track record of, um, of, of not only environmental protection in Antarctica, but in New Zealand as well with, with his various ventures. Mm. And I, I just sat and looked and thought, oh my goodness, um, if I ever wanted two people to, to work with or for, there's two of them in the room. And it, it, don't worry about the salary, lads. I, I'm, I just <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is that um, you know who would you have at a dinner party type yeah. thing, right? Like I'll have you and you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and two of them were there. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Yeah. Um, so coming into it, were they asking you? I, I guess what your vision was for what 
what it could become? Or? Mm. I think after working here for for a little while, you, there are many moving parts, and uh, naivety would have played a huge role in my interview. I think, and that's they would have been aware of that. Um, that unless you come from within the system, mm. it's very difficult to understand the moving parts and the levers that are available to you, mm. because it's not just science. Um, there is a geopolitical view of Antarctica. There is an Antarctic Treaty. Mm. Um, Antarctica New Zealand is monitored by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, my board chair reports to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the logistics arrangements you have with other countries, not just the US, but other countries. So there's lots of things that go on there. Mm. Um, lots of stakeholders. Yeah, <laughs> lots and lots of stakeholders. Yeah. And in my view, actually, I walked in and said, well, look, here's my experience. I've, I've worked all over the world and I'm comfortable with other cultures. Mm. Uh, I've worked with engineering companies um, and, and one in particular that was a very high end. Um, I remember in my former company, one of the the people that worked there had a, a Nobel Prize in physics. Mm. And he was more revered than anyone. If, if you walked into a lift with him and the CEO, most people would look at, oh my God, he won the, he, <laughs> yeah, he's the guy that won the Nobel Physics Prize. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's how. Yeah. Um, and and scientists are, are very similar. Um, that they are uh, very passionate. They want to break through new boundaries, and uh, they have a um, a curiosity of their own. So so there was a similarity in that. Uh, and the final thing that um, I'm I'm genuinely passionate about, uh, other than uh, the environmental protection of 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 Antarctica uh, was the health and safety of our people, and um, and they recognised that that I was quite unrelenting in that, mm. um, and uh, and it's something I'm, I'm tremendously proud of that that they um, they gave me the feedback that that was one of the things they found mm. um, uh, endearing to them. Yeah, that the role needed that yeah. that competence. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So just dive dive with us or help us understand exactly what. Antarctica New Zealand is doing. So in Antarctica New Zealand, um, our, our, our role is effectively New Zealand. We're responsible for New Zealand's affairs in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So we run Scott Base. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we support all of the science programs that that go to to, to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. We work with all the uh, our international partners on logistics sharing and best practice in right. logistics in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, we provide advice and support to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, for matters of the Antarctic Treaty. Uh, and recently we're um, working with the MB, uh, Business um, Innovation and Employment Ministry, for, um, uh, for us to, to administer and host a, a new science fund where there's an extra $7 million per year being put into Antarctic science, and they've asked us to, to administer that. Mm. Um, we hope that we'd have that concluded later this year, but we're very advanced in, in working on that. So that adds a new dimension to our work. Not only is it the logistics and all the other stuff I just mentioned, mm. but administering the science. And, and so not actually having the scientists here ourselves. They, they typically live in crown research institutes or universities around New Zealand mm, I see. Um, but we can we can drive a lot of that science yeah. uh, c- collaboratively with the community and right. that's a r- really exciting time for us yeah so you're kind of like the focal point like there's like we said there's many stakeholders but you're yeah. the the little bit in the in the middle where the spokes come out from is that yeah yeah, yeah. I mean a, a good example of that is um, Ministry of Defence and, and the white paper that was released a couple of years ago just on the importance of Antarctica to New Zealand and in the role that uh, the Ministry, or sorry, the New Zealand Defence Force play in supporting our logistics effort. Mm. And many people don't know that, that actually the Operation Antarctica, the New Zealand Defence Force deployment, is, is one of the biggest deployments of Defence Force personnel per year. Mm. And that's just helping us in the kitchen at Scott Base on their radio operators. Um, they, they, they help us debunk fuel from ships, uh, mm. uh, plant operators, a number of things they do to help us down there. It's, mm. it's, it's a really good relationship we have with the Defence Force. Yeah, oh, that's great. And Christchurch itself as one of the, the I guess, the launch pads mm. to get to Antarctica, where are the other ones around the world? There must be in South America, that's right, in yeah. toward Tierra del Fuego, that yes, type right. of area. Yeah. Is there 
Is there more or is it? Yeah, the, there's five in total. Okay. Yep. Um, there's South Africa, mm-hmm. Hobart, Australia, yeah. New Zealand, and uh, Ushuaia and Punta Arenas. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Argentina and, and, uh, and Chile. Yep. And in terms of the volume of traffic that goes to Antarctica, mm. what sort of percentage comes through Christchurch? That's a good question. I don't know. Mm. I, I would I would guess if you think that between us and the US alone, we'd be sending roughly four four and a half thousand people per year, right? And that would equate to probably, a, I'd say, almost a quarter of, mm. even maybe between a third and a quarter of of all the people that are on uh, mm. that are. Uh, are scientifically operating because I'm not talking about tourism mm-hmm. um, that are operating in Antarctica in any one summer. Yeah, um, because McMurdo Station is uh, mm. houses up to oh, nearly a thousand people, uh, and McMurdo supports the South Pole Station, which is another hundred or so. I see. Yeah, and how many at Scott Base? Less than a hundred to slightly less than a hundred. Right. Yeah. And how how close are they? McMurdo and Scott Base, yeah, yeah. Um, three and a half kilometres. Okay. A nice walk after dinner. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about Antarctica itself. Yeah. Um, I've never been. <laughs> um, have, have you, you've obviously had the chance to go there and spend some time. Um, yes, I have. W- what's it like? It's something that it's very difficult to put in words. Um, unless you've felt what a wind chill of minus 40 or so on your on your face feels like mm. you can't I find it difficult to describe cold you can say pain and sharpness and that kind of stuff yeah. but you add a number of different challenges to your senses that are all happening at the same time and if you think you get off the, the, the aircraft and you land and there's the rush of cold now in summer it's not so bad but this rush of cold and it's bright so you have to wear your goggles or mm. glasses and then there's the sound of your boots on the ice. Mm. And because the, the ice that's there is very, very low in, in water, so it's, it's kind of the crunch is very different mm. to walking on snow that's much more wet mm. here in New Zealand. So that sounds different. Mm. And then there's a complete absence of, unless you're in a penguin colony, of smell, or next to an aircraft, for example, but mm. there is no smell. It's, right, I so, see. And then... It's mostly white, and so your your depth of field is quite challenged, mm. and you have so all these senses. Yeah, uh, this, the absence of smell. If you're in the right places, there's a complete absence of sound. Mm. You, you, there is nothing you can hear, nothing, mm. uh, and it, that is quite a confronting um, sensory experience. Mm. And through all that, I've found, and I've been fortunate enough to be. Um, I uh, have completed five um, field seasons down there now. Mm. Um, it's surprising how spiritual many people find it. Mm. Uh, that they, There's a lot of reflection that goes on that mm. you just look at this place and go, oh, I, I, it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's all the words, that you, the pictures that you've seen would yeah. describe, yeah. but there's something else there. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's go there a little bit more. Like how, what, what um, what do you think is causing that? The environment we've heard is basically sight, smell, sound. Mm. Most of the senses are, yeah. are different. Um, what is it that's sparking that for you as an individual, you think, this sort of spiritual side of things? I think that f- for me it's looking at the continent, and I look at it in, in, in two ways, one as a dad and one as a, as a, as a CEO. Mm-hmm. And the CEO part of me just says, this is a dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. Or what am I doing to keep my people safe and making sure that they come home at night or at the end of their, of their, um, their time on the ice? Right. And, and that takes up part of my mind. And the rest of it as a dad is, look, this is a continent that we have to protect. Mm. And we have to understand its impact on the rest of the world, let alone New Zealand. Mm. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, if if I do the best I can do, I still don't know if it's going to look different for my children. Mm. And that in itself is quite a, it's a massive continent. Yeah. You know, you think uh, 70% of all of the fresh water in the world is sitting right in front of me right. on a grand scale. And even a 2% change of that, 2% change of Antarctica equates to uh, one metre of sea level rise. Mm. And I, I look at that and, and, and you kind of 
partially bound with despair and partially with enthusiasm to say, no, no, we can do something. Right. We can if we study it and we protect it and we do all the things that, that Antarctic New Zealand lives for, mm. then maybe it's not going to be so bad for our children. Yeah. So it's it gives you a chance to reflect and take on those macro sort of yeah. focuses, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas day-to-day here, you might <laughs> have more paperwork to be moving <laughs> yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, one of the reasons we're recording this now in early May is that we've got this tech week coming mm. up yeah. and just thinking about technology. Can you just talk to us a little bit about technology and, and Antarctica and, mm. and what that means and how it's been changing? It's interesting. Uh, I was just reflecting on this yesterday when thinking about, about Tech Week and, and particularly uh, space. And, uh, and we have a, an interesting relationship with space and technology. Um, a, a couple of examples. Uh, we are using satellite imagery to help us on our on our tractor traverses. Mm. We're going now 1,300 kilometres from Scott Base to, mm. to undertake some science in places that our community, our science community, are very interested in understanding. And so we're using a lot of the satellite imagery, uh, mm. and particularly from the University of Canterbury this year. And it's been a, a great result that mm. we can use this type of technology that wasn't available even five years ago to the degree and, and to the resolution that we have now. And, and we we managed to traverse a very long way this year um, and very safely. Hmm. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, so so the, the growth of that technology is supporting our ambition. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, we, we're working on with NASA, actually, um, not Antarctica New Zealand, but the science community are working with NASA, yeah. is, is, is testing um, remote underwater um, uh, robotic units that they intend to... Uh, to use and deploy into space to, to go into moons of various planets mm. and where they know there are lakes that are frozen mm. and uh, how they can drill through them and deploy robots under the sea. Mm. And they're testing them in Antarctica. Right. So there's a nice a nice thing that we're helping space technology as well as space technology is helping us. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Uh, uh, interestingly, um, where technology comes unstuck, and it's another similarity to space, because uh, when it's minus 40, you have to use a pencil. <laughs> uh, ballpoint pens don't cut it. And so little things like uh, right. like that, um, we have a lot of people that come to us with with great apps we can have on our iPhones. And when I say to people that's a fantastic notion, um, a couple of challenges with that. Firstly, um, you normally have to take your glove off. Right. Yeah, I know you have gloves now that have, but but to get into the app sometimes it's so anywhere where you have to take your glove off is not fun when it's really cold mm. uh, secondly um, the battery life of your typical smartphone is pretty poor at those temperatures mm. and thirdly it's a high static low humidity environment and so you can zap your screen in no time and render it useless I see. so, so <laughs> in, in many cases we're still using technology that's 20, 30 years old. Right. Uh, and it works really well. Yeah. Well, I love the way that you talked about the pencil. You know, like, mm. <laughs> let's go back to the primitive, mm. in, not primitive, but, you know, it's that's pretty basic, yeah. but actually works much better than a pen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, so as part of Tech Week, is it is it the, the space challenge is on, I think, right mm. now? And that's, that's right. kind of looking at Antarctica and what could be done there, that the innovations could then be used in space. Is that something that you've been involved in? Yeah, Antarctica and New Zealand are, are sponsoring that space challenge. Yep. We'd find, um, because of the innovation we've had in the last couple of years, particularly helping us with the safety of our, our field traverses, mm. and, and that is um, using space to detect where crevasses and um, and you might say bad choices of a, of, of a, a path might be, mm. uh, it, the, we can only see that a greater need for that in the future. Mm. And, and that's why we're so interested in, in, uh, in this challenge. Mm. Uh, if we can find more or new technology that can support us, mm. it will be used readily yeah. uh, for us. And not only Antarctic and New right? Zealand, <laughs> but, but uh, all of the, all the national Antarctic programs mm. would use this type of technology. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, that's good. One of the people I interviewed for the podcast is Emmeline Pat Dostrom, oh, yeah. who's involved in the space side. Yeah. Thing. And so she, the interview with her, we're talking all about space mm-hmm. and the democratization of space and going you know, to other planets. And yeah. it's a really fun conversation. I think yeah. she's involved in this um, space challenge as well. Great. Yeah. Um, so just thinking, I guess, about Antarctica, what's, what are some of the questions that, that people don't ask you that you actually think would give a good answer or be quite interesting? Mm. I, I love being asked, um, and typically by children, um, what can we do? Mm-hmm. What can we do? And, uh, and, and for people to to understand that and I know I've mentioned it before in, in, in this in this interview but Antarctica does that the, the ice sheets of Antarctica hold secrets that that will determine what our effectively what our you know, coastal regions of our planet will look like in in, in the future mm. and for people to to acknowledge the relationship between the choices they are making, in a domestic sense, and I'm talking about transportation or energy use, etc., uh, food, all the kinds of things that that are uh, associated with a changing climate, mm. which impacts Antarctica. For them to understand the relationship and the the, the impact, mm. uh, and the the challenge is un, is 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 having people understand that the impact of what's happening now won't be seen for decades, if not centuries. And how fair is that? Mm. Um, and they're the kind of conversations I love having with people. Mm. And so that goes back to the the, the, the 10-year-old school child that answers, sure. well, but what can I do? What can we do? Yeah, yeah. It, it is really about having that longer-term vision, isn't it? Mm. You know, not, not a short-sighted um, view of the world and and what's best for me individually, but mm. actually thinking generationally. Yeah. What is my, what is what will my great 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 grandchildren? Mm. How will life be for them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and as I said, um, if I said to you, you're going to have a two percent change and mm. anything in your life, you you'll probably go, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, a two percent change, one meter of sea level rise. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's a massive change. For New Zealand, yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, it's amazing. Just finishing off with the technology piece, mm. um, I interviewed Rob Lindemann um, over at the Hit Lab mm-hmm. at University of Canterbury, yeah. and I think he did a program that you guys are involved in, um, where he actually got to go to Antarctica. That's right. Yeah. And his his area is virtual reality. That's right. <laughs> and I think one of the things he was thinking is, wouldn't it be great if the scientists could explain to people back here? And then people here could be wearing goggles and kind of see 360 mm. what the scientist was actually there and explaining. And there's now the technology that we could do that. And I thought that was a great example of a positive use of technology, you know, to yeah. to actually get the message out and to give a experience to people. And, and that uh, similar technology w- we have been using, and, and I was with Rob uh, down at Scott Base this oh, year and, and yeah. really interested talking with him. Um and uh, I know we have a, a scientist, Barbara Breen, from um, AUT in Auckland, mm. and uh, she's been working with some drones and, 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 and mapping areas for us that can help mm. uh, us understand from an environmental perspective, understanding some of the changes that are going on with the, with the, um, uh, the moss and lichen and things that, are, that, that grow and, and develop there mm. and, and monitor the change of that. And it extends into buildings and structures as well. Yeah. So this virtual reality stuff, I, I totally agree with what you've said. Mm. Um, it gives us an opportunity to, because we can't take yeah. people to Antarctica. Can't take everybody. No, yeah. and, <laughs> and it is one of the biggest challenges. I, I gave you, when you asked me what's it like, mm. Uh, there's nothing that I could tell you that yeah. that you, that you can touch or feel or smell or hear, mm. and you can see a, a picture. And how do you bring that to life to make it relevant for people? And that mm. is our, one of our biggest challenges as an organisation. And I know um, uh, certainly uh, our board and and the minister are very keen for us to make sure we. We demystify the science that, yeah. so people understand it. Yeah. Well, it would be great, you know, like you mentioned, the 10-year-old who asked the question, yeah. you know, what, what do we do? If you could actually give them some goggles and, and, and give it a little taste mm. of it or an experience, then that would be pretty amazing. And it's trying to, 
to say to the, the 10 year old, here's a view today. Yeah. And here's a view that what it might look like when you're my age and when your children are my age. And, and, and to see what, um, what those ice sheets will look like. There's a lot of conversation now, of course, about, mm. about um, um, glaciers in New Zealand mm. and, and how they are retreating and people are providing imagery of what it looked like over the last 20 years. Well, you do that on a, on a massive scale. Yeah. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, well, I love the, the sense that I get from you that you're willing to embrace technology and, Absolutely. and, and work out how you can leverage it and use it. And yeah, let's hope that the Space Challenge reveals something, you know, that <laughs> that you'll be able to take down there. And and, and and the Space Challenge stuff we're talking about is not not just science. Mm. It, it adds the three major dimensions that we look at. That, that firstly, that our science, understanding Antarctica. It, it, the second is, is keeping our people safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and thirdly is, is the environmental protection of Antarctica. Mm. And it, you know, that's one of the ways of protecting it other than preventing it from, from changing is making sure we don't have any, any environmental footprint. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Let's get a side question here. Tourism in Antarctica. Um, what, what sort of traffic is there going down there? Is, are there, yeah, how many people do we know or is it, yeah. Um, I don't know the, the the actual figures of of tourists that travel to Antarctica. New Zealand has a, a government policy or government position on on tourism in Antarctica. Mm. Um, we sometimes see the, the tourist vessels um, in and around Scott Base. They have very different rules to the the scientific programs and mm-hmm. the National Antarctic Program that that uh, I'm part of. Yep. Yep. No, that's fine. I was just thinking you'd said about the footprint, and mm. I was just curious about that side of things. New Zealand are very um, keen to, to advocate with our uh, Antarctic Treaty partners um, responsible tourism. Mm. And um, the two aspects of, of, of tourism, one is that the environmental impact, as you've said, and you know, for example, could we have areas that are, are set aside just for tourists and say, okay, well, you can visit here, and here, and here, and that's yeah. it. Yeah. And you know, it's a nice way almost to, to go back to the start of our interview. We're sitting mm. in here and yeah. this lovely image of Shackleton's Hut, which mm. the Antarctic Heritage Trust uh, and their donors have, have generously uh, and tirelessly worked to, mm. uh, to, to create and, and to bring back to its original condition. Mm. Um, how sad it would be if no one got to see it. Mm. So there's an argument, and, and for there's people who there, yeah. Yeah, if people who travel to Antarctica are generally ones who are so passionate. Well, why why can't we educate them yeah. about the science, etc. That goes there. So there's that. There's a friction in there that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I want to ask you about Shackleton, mm. and just because when you read biographies of people like that, and Scott and mm. Wilson, and all these people, like what they went through. 100 years ago, you know, we're talking about technology and what they had to work with mm. and yet what they were able to accomplish. Um, are there certain of those explorers and things, are there any that stand out to you as being like the the heroes of Antarctic exploration? I, I think to, to answer the question in a different way, um, because they each had their own motives and, and a lot of people forget or, or aren't familiar with um, that in each of these huts, there's a, an area that, that they were conducting science as they did it. Mm. Um, and they were funded predominantly by science institutions for people to understand Antarctica. Mm. But if I go into <clears throat> Shackleton's hut or, or Scott's hut at, at, uh, at Cape Evans, um, it, it's just very different and, and very different leadership. And you can see the way in which in this hut, Shackleton had his own room. Uh, whereas uh, Scott, uh, whilst he slept with the men, he slept with the uh, the officers. End of the of the. And it's very more open plan, etc. Mm. Um, and I, I wouldn't say I would have a, a particular favourite, but certainly uh, Shackleton's failed transantarctic expedition, where um, his leadership and the heroism of those men uh, is an amazing story that I'd. Mm. If you don't know it, I'd recommend you understanding because. When you're in minus 65 um, and dark and you've got not much to keep you warm but you survive, uh, it's an incredible journey of, of uh, for me, um, uh, endurance and, and heroism. Mm. 
because now in a way that people are going down there now they're kind of building on what's come before and and we still use the scientific reports of 100 years ago right so peter just thinking about the future in antarctica and Mm -hmm. particularly just looking at scott base sort of what what do you think the future holds there that's a good question um and I, I say that because uh, in recent years we're we're really seeing that as a as a building uh, d- deteriorating, and at the same time the government is showing interest in um, more funding for science, um, for our infrastructure um, to support our work down there. For example, uh, the Ministry of Defence uh, new uh, supply vessel is mm. uh, is I strengthened to come and supply um, containers etc to Scott Base. Um, but the the asset itself at Scott Base is is now getting uh, mm. getting to the end of its life, and so we're going through a process right. now uh, with the government um, and presenting a, a business case near the end of this year for the for the redevelopment of Scott Base. Mm. Um, so we're, we're hopeful, of course, that uh, that we will be, get the funding next year and budget next year, budget 2019, for us to to redevelop. Mm. And uh, so far, it's been very good. Um, it is it is quite cross-government that it's unthinkable for New Zealand not to have a presence in Antarctica, mm. not to continue the good science that we've been doing mm. since Hillary was there in, in 57. Mm. Assuming that does go ahead and the redevelopment happens, you can bring in some of this tech that Ex- we're talking about, right? Ex- exactly right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, make it a world-leading example yeah. of what's possible. And, and that's what I've said to the team. Uh, I don't want to win an architectural award. I want to win an award for environmental sustainability. Yeah. Yeah, and oh, that, that will put us in a in a place amongst our, the entire treaty nations of mm-hmm. very high. Oh, that's awesome! Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and just hearing about your own life journey as well. You know, just finding out a bit about uh, where you'd been around the world, and then what that has led to in terms of this role. And I was really fascinated to hear, particularly about the importance of the safety of the people who are involved. You know, making sure that the team is is safe, mm. but then also just about the um, the actual scientific research that's going on. You know, it sounds like there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people heading down there. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing that stuck out to me was just the willingness to think about the future and technology mm. and how do we get the messages out about Antarctica to the next generations, to that 10-year-old that we're talking about, you yeah. know, and, um, and what the future might hold. So really, thank you very much for your time. Well, it's been a privilege. Thank you. Well, I think you'll agree that there was a lot of content there in that discussion with Peter and a lot of challenges as well about the future and what it holds for Antarctica. Now, next week's episode, we're going to be talking with Stella Ward all about health and technology. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Stella. Uh, Big data and analytics and what that will lead to is what personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. So um, because we will have so much data about an individual, we can then and design the personal healthcare solution for that individual. Mm. Um, so that's exciting and also come with some challenges around ethics and do you want to know that you've got the gene for dementia and mm. what will that mean and how might you change your behaviour or what will you do with your life? And mm. So we all need to be careful how we give information mm. um, and share information, not to be paternalistic in any way but just to be real human beings um, are quite linear in their thinking um, and this is big stuff to mm. try to get your head around. So mm. I think personalised medicine will be both an opportunity and a challenge um, and the big data will drive that. Mm. I do hope you can join me for that upcoming episode and remember that this interview is one of almost 40 that have been released so you might want to check out the back catalogue as well. Until next time.